Hey, you came back. Welcome back to the Final Authority Podcast. I'm your host, Woody, and today we're going to continue our discussion of political matters. Uh, last, Last episode, I talked about should the church be outspoken and involved in politics, uh, talking about pastors and Christians. Should we speak out and should the Bible be used in politics? Should Christian faith, Judeo-Christian values be involved? Today, I'm going to continue. Uh, we came to the conclusion that yes, we should. Yes, the church should. And since the founding of this nation, the church has been intricately involved in the governing and the decisions made by our governing bodies. Today, I'm going to continue in our political discussions, uh, looking again to the final authority, to the Word of God, for our influence, for our direction, for our wisdom. And today, I'm going to be tackling a uh, spiny topic, a difficult, touchy, testy topic on where should Christians stand on abortion. And, you know, as I was thinking about the last episode, it kind of came off kind of rough, I think. And this one is kind of a spiny subject as well. And I think that may be one of the reasons that many uh, pastors are hesitant to talk about these things. Uh, I'm I'm not a pastor, but um, I can understand the hesitancy there. But we are going to discuss it. We're going to examine abortion in the light of God's Word and what the Word of God says, uh, particularly for Christians... Where should we stand on abortion? And our final authority is the Word of God. So let's look at what the Word of God says about abortion. Now, first you have to define abortion. What is abortion? And as far as Christians go, uh, people who claim to be Christians, there are three primary beliefs about abortion. Uh, The thing is they can't all be right. So uh, the first we'll examine is some people say that Uh, The baby is not a person, uh, not a baby, until it, the umbilical cord is cut and the baby breathes its first breath of air on its own. And then it becomes a living soul. Problem with that theory is there's no scripture to support that whatsoever. So if the word of God is our final authority and we base our decisions and our beliefs based on the word of God, that can't stand. There's, there's no scripture to support that. That's just somebody's reasoning, which is not even worth discussing anymore. The second belief among Christians about abortion, and these are people who, who believe abortion is okay. Um, they say that the baby is not actually a baby until six months. Because uh, in Luke one forty one, when Mary went to visit Elizabeth... And the baby, John the Baptist, leapt in Mary's womb when he heard Mary's voice. Uh, leapt in Elizabeth's womb when he heard Mary's voice. They say that because of that one scripture, that at six months the baby leapt in, in her womb was filled with the Holy Spirit, then uh, at six months the baby becomes a living soul. Problem is, again, that's only one scripture, and uh, I believe it's taken out of context. So, what I believe is correct is that the baby is a living spirit at conception. And I can't make that statement without giving you scripture to support it. Uh, so let's go ahead and get into that. My first one that I'll reference is Jeremiah 1.5, where the Lord, speaking to Jeremiah, says, Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart and called you as a prophet to the nations. 
before I formed you in your mother's womb. So before there was a heartbeat. So the heartbeat is not a good reference point. Before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before anything was formed. That would be conception. I knew you and I set you apart. God already had a plan for you at your conception and before, really. In Deuteronomy 30, 19, one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible. The Lord said, I set before you this day life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life so that you and your seed may live. It's interesting that he refers to your seed. That would imply conception to me. You and your seed may live. And now some people will, will try to pull that out and say, oh, well, when he said seed, that's just the old Bible way of saying your descendants. Uh, but it, God doesn't say anything by accident. He doesn't use any words by accident. When he said seed, he meant seed. We can also look at Matthew one twenty three. Also, uh, it's referring to Isaiah 7.14, which says about Jesus, He shall be called Emmanuel. So this is speaking about the baby Jesus, prophesying about his birth. The angel speaking to Mary in one instance and Isaiah prophesying in the other says, He shall be called Emmanuel. This is before the conception of Jesus. This is before the physical conception, before the, he was physically formed in the womb. He was given a name. He shall be called. He had a destiny. He had a plan from God. For his life. In Matthew 121, you shall call his name Jesus. The angel speaking to Mary, he said, You're going to have a baby. This is what you will call him. God had given him a name before he was born, before he was conceived. He was given a name. In Luke 113, we see Zechariah going into the temple, and he was he was getting up there in years, and he hadn't had a son, and he was praying before God, and God said, Your prayer, the angel spoke to him, said, Your prayer is heard, your wife shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. Again, we see an instance where God gives the name of the baby before the baby's even conceived. In Psalm 139, 13, the Bible says, You knit me together in my mother's womb. And Mark 10, 9 says, What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So if God is the author of life, and that's why abortion is such a sick, sick, twisted sin, sinful act, such a demonic thing, because we as human, it's the pride, it's the arrogance to think that we have the position and authority to take a life. When we are not the authors of that life, we did not give that life, so we have no legal right to take that life. God, as the author and giver of life, is the only one who has the ability and the say-so to say, this life is going to be cut short, and he doesn't do that. But we think that we have the power and authority. It's wrong. It's twisted. What, join, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. What does God think about killing babies? So we've established, based on these scriptures, that at a minimum, conception is the beginning of life. And ending a baby's life at any point after conception would be murder. So what does God think about abortion? What does God think about killing babies? In Ezekiel 16, 21, 
Through the prophet Ezekiel, God spoke to Israel. He said, you slaughtered my children. My children. He didn't say your children, your neighbor's children, the children of Israel, the children of your nation. He said, my children. Made it personal. It is personal to God. Isaiah 57.5 is calling for judgment. Because they did the same thing, sacrificing their children in ravines. Deuteronomy 12.31, talking about the neighbors, neighboring nations to Israel and, and warning the children of Israel about them, says they do the thing, detestable things the Lord hates, sacrificing their children. Jeremiah 19, and, and, and some people say, well, we, you know, we're not sacrificing children when we, when we abort these lifeless bodies, which is rooted in a lie and is altogether a lie. But we're not sacrificing children. But you are. You're sacrificing that child's life on the altar of your pride and arrogance. You're worshiping the, the God of this world. You're worshiping yourself as having the authority to take life. It is a sacrifice of a life. Jeremiah 19, 4 and 5 is again warning against judgment against Israel and destruction, impending doom, because you have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. There is no more innocent person than a baby. Hasn't even had the chance to commit a wrongful act. And God avenges the innocent. Ezekiel 16.20 again speaking to Israel, said, You slaughtered my children. In Proverbs 6.17, talking about the things that God hates, one of those things very explicitly laid out is God hates hands that shed innocent blood. God does take notice of these things. From conception, at a minimum, that is a life, that is a baby. God gives names before conception. He calls them before they're formed in their mother's womb. They are potential lives. They are babies. That's what the Word of God says. And Genesis 4.10 talks about what happens when innocent blood is shed. This is when Cain killed Abel. And God walked up to Abel, was speaking with Abel, and said, His blood is crying out to me for vengeance. His blood cries out from the earth. The blood of the innocent, blood that is shed, cries out to God for vengeance. Let's look at an example of, of mass infanticide in the Bible. If you look at Exodus 1 and 2, uh, to lay a little foundation for this, we had Joseph come into Egypt as a slave, and God, through his favor and his mercy, raised him up until he had interpreted Pharaoh's dream, and Pharaoh's made, Pharaoh made him the second-in-command over all of Egypt. Under his leadership, the nation prospered. The nation survived a famine that destroyed all the nations around, stripped them of their wealth, and made Egypt, through Joseph's leadership by the Lord, made Egypt the sole existing power in that land. Financial, geographical, dominant power through Joseph. But a few generations pass, 
and the Egyptians. Forget about Joseph. Joseph's family, uh, Jacob and his sons, who, who came, Israel, and lived in the land of Goshen, or Goshen, however you want to say it, multiplied and were, were blessed and increased. And they became greater than the Egyptians in number. And the Egyptians, generations after Joseph, forgot about the blessing that Joseph had been, the blessing that the Israelites had brought to their land. And they turned against the Israelites. God's people continued to multiply. They enslaved them. And they continued to grow anyway. They increased their burdens, the Israelites' burdens, and still the Israelites continued to multiply. And so what happens here is the enemy fears the people of God. And his answer, his response to that fear is always oppression, slavery, and murder. We've seen it play out throughout the ages. Every time God's people begin to become powerful and threaten the force of darkness, his answer is oppression, slavery, and murder. He is the thief. He, John 10.10 10 says that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's all he can do. That is who he is. And he hates God's people because we took the place that he desired. He desired to be set as a ruler, to be given dominion, and God gave it to us. So in his fear, his answer is always oppression, slavery, and murder. And that's what we see in Egypt. That's what we saw with Hitler and the Nazis. That's what we see with socialism and communism in every story. In Russia, in China, the same pattern. The same thing always happens. But back to Egypt here. Oppression, slavery, and murder. So it started with oppression. They made them slaves. They increased their burdens. And then that wasn't working. They were still multiplying. The people of God were still blessed. And so Satan, through Pharaoh, said, well, kill the babies so that they can stop multiplying. We'll talk about communism and, and the failures of socialism and communist countries in, in a uh, future episode. But that's, that's the pattern that it always follows. So he, he turns to murder and he says, kill all the babies so that they can't multiply. We even see that today in, in China. I'm, I'm getting off. In China. But murder, infanticide, kill the babies. Told the midwives, when you deliver a baby, if it's a boy, you kill it right there. How's that any different than what's happening right now with abortion? It's not. It's exactly the same thing. Except now we have the so-called technology to where, well, we can kill the baby before it even comes out. And then if we can do that when it's hidden, then people won't think it's as bad of a thing because it won't be so obvious and, and visual. It's still murder. But in Exodus chapter 2, we see mass infanticide. What was happening at that time? In God's timeline, what was going on? Moses came on the scene, right? Moses was born during that time when infanticide was at its peak. When the murder of thousands and hundreds of thousands of babies, perhaps millions, was at its peak. Moses, the deliverer of God's people, was at its peak. You see, the enemy had God's people in oppression, but he knows he can't keep them there. He knows God will deliver his people. He knows God will answer the cries of his people. 
So he said, I've got to do something to prevent this deliverer from coming because he knows that God uses people. So he said, all right, I can prevent the, the deliverer from raising up from God's people. I'll just kill all the babies. That's interesting. And yet, Moses survived. And not only did Moses survive, he was raised in the house of Pharaoh who gave the order to kill the babies. Is that not an ironic twist? You cannot outsmart God. But the devil thinks he can. So then we go to the New Testament. We go to Matthew chapter 2, where the wise men come to Herod and tell him that uh, the king of kings is born in, in Bethlehem, the king of the Jews. And Herod, being the egocentric dictator that he was, felt threatened, as I guess rightly he should be. And so his response, again, the enemy fears, and his answer is always oppression, slavery, and murder, one or a combination of the three, he orders an infanticide. He orders all of the babies under, uh, what was it, three years old to be killed. And that's the time when God sent Jesus out of uh, Bethlehem. He went over into Egypt. Until Herod had passed away, and I, I suppose that order had been lifted. You can't outsmart God. But the devil thinks he can. So we got that mass infanticide at the coming of a Savior. Just like in Exodus, in the Old Testament, at the coming of the, the deliverer Moses, who is a type of Christ, if you look at it, we had this mass infanticide. When Jesus comes, we had this mass infanticide. The enemy knew on God's timeline there was a, deliver com a deliverer coming. Com a deliverer coming. It was... Uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't stop it, but he thought he could. It was inevitable. That's the word I was looking for. Inevitable that God would deliver his people. And the enemy knew that. He knew his time was running short. So he increased the oppression and he, result, he, he turned to murder. Murdering millions of babies. And yet, the plan of God prevails. Now look at what's happening today in the light of those two instances. Look at what's happening today. The enemy knows his time is short. And so what does he do? He turns to oppression, he turns to fear, slavery, and murder, particularly infanticide. Why? Because the Savior is, his arrival is imminent, and it's inevitable. There's a couple messages in there for us today. Our Savior is returning very, very soon. We see the signs. So we've got a job to do. We've got to speak out for righteousness. We've got to stand for truth. We've got to be unafraid of the oppression, of the backlash, of the criticism, which will come in a world where we are not of this world. So they won't recognize us. If they persecuted Christ, they're going to persecute us. We can't fear that. We can't run from it. We've got to stand and be faithful to our God. So according to the Word of God, looking at these scriptures that I've laid out, and there's more, I just chose these, looking at these examples, according to the Word of God, which is our final authority, which is the final authority, we as Christians cannot condone abortion at any point in the pregnancy. 
from conception on. We cannot condone abortion. We should be diametrically opposed to it if we're going to agree with the Word of God. And we also cannot turn a blind eye. We can't remain silent. Because the whole nation is judged based on the actions of the nation. And we live in this nation of America. The judgment of nations is not doled out on an individual level. And there are so many examples of judgment on America for our actions in the past. Which maybe some people consider coincidences. I disagree strongly. For example, and this doesn't have to do particularly with abortion, but it has to do with the judgment of the nation. If you look at Hurricane Katrina. We will talk about the parallels uh, maybe in a future episode, but for, for this example, I want to talk about the parallels uh, between our treatment of Israel and the judgment that followed. Uh, this is Hurricane Katrina in 2005 directly corresponded with the evacuation of the Gaza Strip when President Bush uh, came to so-called peace agreements and a quote, two-state solution for Israel, where they divided Israel uh, and gave it to the Palestinians, who biblically, scripturally, and spiritually have no right to the land. Uh, and what God says in Scripture is that when we bless Israel, we'll be blessed. When we curse Israel, we'll be cursed. I want to read uh, from an article on watch.org, uh, which is William Koenig's site. He's actually got a book called Eye to Eye. Outlining more of these instances, more of these correlations between our treatment of Israel, between our violations of, of God's policies and His Word with natural disasters, and the, the parallels between them are, are astounding. You, you cannot dismiss these as simply coincidences. Uh, but let's, uh, let's look at Hurricane Katrina and how the nation was judged based on how we treated Israel. And again, we'll, we'll talk about Israel in another episode, but this is a good example of... Uh, I, I believe uh, the judgment that that uh, we we can see when we violate God's principles. So, um, 2005, uh, this article says Israel's disengagement, evacuation, and eviction began on Wednesday, August 17th, and ended on Tuesday, August 23rd. According to CNN, Israel evacuated the last settlers and protesters from the West Bank settlement of Homesh on Tuesday, August 23rd completing its historic withdrawal of civilians from 25 settlements in Gaza and the West Bank. Gaza's final evacuation occurred on Monday, August 22nd. Um, Israeli forces plan to remove the settlers' belongings, destroy their houses, and then withdraw from Gaza. How, how does this seem right to anybody? Authorities used force at times on Tuesday, August 23rd, to clear two remaining West Bank settlements, Hamesh and Saner. On Tuesday, August 23rd, 2005, Tropical Depression 12 formed. By 11 a.m. on Wednesday, the newly formed Tropical Depression was upgraded to Tropical Storm Katrina, and by 5 p.m. on Thursday, August 25th, Katrina became a hurricane. Friday, August 26th, Katrina hit southeast Florida. By Monday, the 29th, Katrina had become a fierce and enormous Category 4 hurricane that hit Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama, devastating the city of New Orleans. It's now being called the largest natural disaster in U.S. history at the time of this writing. Israel's Gaza and northern Samaria settlements were under military occupation during the time of the evacuation. And New Orleans was under military occupation as they attempted to restore order. As in a war zone, military bases are being established in a city divided into sectors while the Navy has moved warships up the Mississippi for hel helicopter operations. On Wednesday, August 
17th, Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon authorized the mandatory evacuation of residents refusing to evacuate Gaza. On September 7th, an hour after New Orleans Mayor Ray Najin ordered the mandatory evacuation of the crippled Crescent City by force if necessary, soldiers began coaxing some of the Hurricane Katrina holdouts from their homes due to fire and disease risks. We have thousands of people who want to voluntary, voluntarily evacuate at this time, Police Chief Eddie Compass said, adding that once they all were out, we'll concentrate our forces on mandatory evacuation. Israeli settlers stated that the Gaza and Samaria evictions will go down as the worst abandonment of Jews in history and the largest forced evacuation in Israel's history. Katrina has produced the largest mass migration and evacuation in U.S. history as hundreds of thousands of people were forced from their homes. The media and the Democrats say the White House abandoned black residents in New Orleans by not getting them help fast enough. Uh, Aaron Bruchard, uh, president of Louisiana's Jefferson Parish, said on NBC's Meet the Press that the response to Hurricane Katrina will go down as one of the most, one of the worst abandonments of Americans on American soil ever in U.S. history. Nine thousand Israelis were evicted by their government. Shortly thereafter, one million Americans were evicted by Hurricane Katrina. Israeli security teams went from home to home to evict Israelis, while teams of soldiers went home to home in New Orleans evicting people. Israel has an evacuee problem with people spread throughout Israel in hotels lodged in makeshift homes and living in tents. Texas and other U.S. states are absorbing record numbers of Katrina evacuees. President Bush's home state of Texas has more than 250,000 evacuees. Houston's Astrodome is filled with 33,000 people. There are 150,000 refugees in Houston. Houston's 55,000 hotel rooms, 20 Red Cross facilities, and 20 faith-based shelters. While 2,700 homes were demolished in Gaza and 300 homes in northern Samaria, tens of thousands of homes were demolished in the southern U.S. with many more severely damaged. Businesses were forcefully abandoned in Gaza, Israel. Many businesses will have to be abandoned in Louisiana and other Gulf Coast cities. Buses took Israelis out of Gaza and northern Samaria to their temporary homes, while buses took New Orleans residents to their temporary homes in Texas and other southern states. Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon saw the largest eviction of Jews in Israel history. President Bush will oversee the largest natural disaster and displacement of people in U.S. history. Yet despite the enormous influx from across the U.S. national U.S. of National Guard reservists, units of Federal Army and Marines, the Coast Guard airmen, firefighters from Los Angeles, and even Texas game wardens in boats, the logistics of evacuating the remaining residents from the flooded suburbs and collecting possibly thousands of bodies present enormous challenges. They also expose flaws in management structure and communications. Gush Katif was a very important agricultural area for Israel. New Orleans port exported much of the Midwest's agricultural productions. The parallels here are inexcusable. The nation is judged as a whole based on what our leaders that we elected do. Coming back to our topic of this discussion, abortion, we cannot afford to be silent. And we definitely cannot condone and elect leaders and representatives who stand for abortion. Because we as a nation, as a people, will be judged for it. So there you go. That's my spiel on abortion. Uh, based on the Word of God, which is our final authority. I believe I gave you enough scripture to lay out a pretty good foundation. And then there's that little extra bit at the back to encourage you to really think about, as a Christian, we need to stand against abortion. And we need to be outspoken about it and stand on the truth. 
and refuse to be cowed into submission because of fear, uh, of criticism because of attacks on our uh, honor, if you will. We have to stand for truth and righteousness. So according to the Word of God, abortion is wrong, diametrically opposed to God, and it always, historically in Scripture, it always precedes God's plan. It always is in opposition to God's plan to save His people. And really, you can't get any more antagonistic to God who wants all to be saved than to kill those that He would want to save before they have the chance to turn to Him. Right? And, and so, according to the Word of God, our final authority, Christians, as Christians, we must stand against abortion. We must be, as the political phrase goes, pro-life. And unabashedly and unashamedly, pro-life. This has been the Final Authority Podcast. I'll catch you next time.